I have been given a topic by Danny Johnson, and um, the topic is Solus Christus, the, one of the five solas of the Reformation, Christ alone. So um, he gave me no guidelines beyond that, so I invented my own, and um, we'll just work my way through then some thoughts that are largely, I think, historical, and then uh, hopefully with um, something devotional we can take away with when we go. I, I was really uh, captivated last week, I hope you were too, on Thursday with Father Gilbaugh's presentation in chapel. Um, I came to appreciate that something of the history and the heritage, and above all, at least to me, the complexity of Roman Catholic theology. Did you pick up on that? Um, it, was, it, was, it really came, resonated to me. I was actually baptized Catholic. That thought just occurs to me. Um, my godparents did an abysmal job of keeping me in the faith. Um, but nonetheless, I, that, <laughs> that does not qualify me, however, to speak for Rome. Nonetheless, I suspect that, that uh, what we understand the Catholic Church to be in our day pales in comparison to the, the pervasive, uh, the far-reaching, and the rigid control the Catholic Church exerted in Europe in 1517. I mean, 500 years now have gone by, 500 years of global expansion, 500 years of syncretism, 500 years of changes coming down from, from Rome and so forth. But back in the day, now it's, it's easy. Mass is said in English in English-speaking countries and for hundreds of years only in Latin. And the priests controlled, and I'm told this is still true, in parts of Spain and other places, parts of staunchly Catholic Europe, that the priest controls the town. And missionaries who've tried to bring the gospel into some uh, solidly Catholic communities have found their primary opposition to be from the priest who really does run the show. Well, that's probably a taste of how it was, or as we say in the John class, how it used to was in the uh, time of of uh, the Reformation in 1517, because the reforms of the 1960s really were quite radical. Um, the Roman Catholic context of the early 1500s that led to the, the Reformers' declaration of solus Christus, Christ alone, had pretty much everything to do with an expression of polytheism, or should we say the accusation of polytheism on the part of the Catholics by the Reformers. Here's the deal. They prayed to and were accused of worshiping various saints, particularly Mary, the Blessed Virgin, and Catholics offered homage to these at various levels. So clearly, we have a problem, as far as the Reformers were concerned. Who, what, in the case of relics, is worthy of worship? So we have to keep in mind that the saints were, and, and still are, depicted by statues and portraits. Two very serious objections were raised 
by the reformers. First, they saw the saints and so forth as representing multiple mediators between the people and God. Further, and I think more seriously, they saw actual idolatry as it was perceived. Now, the idea behind praying to saints was to entreat a particular saint who had a particular heavenly assignment, uh, entreating that saint to represent a person's petition to God. The idea being the saint is closer to God than I am, and so if I can get the saint to get to Jesus for me, then that would be a good thing. The saint, no doubt, as a saint, having more clout with the Almighty than certainly I would have. So the saint would represent the person's petition to God. And there seemed to be a fine line, if there was any line at all, between praying to, offering homage to, venerating, or even worshiping um, these dead saints. Now you realize, if, if you don't know the Protestant-Catholic distinction between saints, in Catholicism a saint has to be declared such, but it's a big deal. Usually you have to be dead to become a saint, and it's a big deal in the Roman Catholic Church to be a saint. Protestants say, we are all saints. They take what I would consider to be a more biblical position there, and so saints are elevated in Catholicism above what they would be considered in Protestantism. So they, they, they had a hard time understanding, are we worshiping, are we praying, are we doing homage, are we bowing? what are we doing with these dead saints? And so concerns were raised on the part of Luther and others that the second of the Ten Commandments, which is what? Thou shalt not, what? Have any graven images. They felt that was being blatantly violated. Now, Father Gilbaugh's presentation prompted me to consider this. And you maybe you picked up on this. It, it's, it's evident that the church, the Roman church, may have an official, perhaps theological position on a matter, but that may not always be understood or accurately reflected by the rank-and-file parishioners. Theologically, the church may hold a certain thing and, and, and may maintain certain distinctives, but do the people know that? And is there a distinction on the part of just the common worshiper uh, who's, who may be offering a petition to a saint? Am I doing venerating? Am I doing homage? Am I worshiping? What am I doing? Or just praying? So confusion abounded, to be sure. This complicated the, the practice of people's praying to or worshiping an object other than God himself. Technically, the Roman Catholic Church distinguishes three different levels of worship. And this is, I think, significant. Um, this is in order to preclude the violation of the Second Commandment. They don't want, officially, officially the Roman Catholic Church says we do not worship graven images. It's just hard to attach that to the people in every case. So they have these three different levels of worship and so that they are careful not to violate the second commandment while still allowing people to address Mary and the saints in prayer. These categories include the latria, this would be Latin, it indicates worship reserved for God alone. So God alone is the one we worship. Watch the the distinctives in distinctions in terms. 
the hyperdulia, which is reserved for Mary, the Blessed Virgin. So if you're praying to Mary, or you're venerating Mary, or you're going, oh, you're not worshiping her, if you're doing it under the umbrella of, of hyperdulia. And then there's just simple, plain old meat and potatoes dulia, which is the least expression of veneration reserved for miscellaneous saints and images and relics. You know about relics? Relics are uh, alleged physical leftovers from the days of Jesus. The piece of the cross of Christ may be held in a certain church, and it's a relic. It's special. Mary's breast milk is retained in a variety of churches in Europe as a, as a relic, and there's a sense in which there's veneration and homage offered there. Now, semantic issues obviously come into play because the church officially, theologically distinguishes worship from veneration from honor. God alone is to be worshipped. Mary may be venerated. Lesser saints and relics are honored. Do you get that? So the, the, the words are what are in line here. We think, oh, those Catholics, oh, those Catholics. Look, Protestant groups have been known to do this sort of thing as well. Uh, I was involved in a Nazarene church for a while, years ago, and this is a particular church, if you didn't know this, that they, the church now, I don't know about all the people in the church, but the church holds a position that you can, in this life, attain sinless perfection. Right? Um, I asked, I, I heard that from a preacher. I went to one of my teachers at Bible college at the time, and I said, what do you do with this? This guy says he's sinlessly perfect, and my teacher came back and said, well, just ask his wife. <laughs> but here's how they do it. They, they categorize, they, they define their terms appropriately so that, excuse me, sin is, in their view, high-handed rebellion, closed fist, high-handed rebellion against God. Anything less than that assumes the category of crime, vice, or mistake. And so under that particular scheme, you can do almost anything short of openly rebelling against God and claim sinless perfection. They believe that there's a second work of grace following regeneration, that, and under this second work of grace, a person becomes filled with the Holy Spirit and his or her sin nature is then eradicated. And these are Evangelical Christians in America today, maybe even in this room. So I'm just saying that in order to say, look, it's not just, we do this. Uh, we can excuse things for various reasons. Um, the Roman church did things like this with words as well. Um, now, in addition, I, you may know this. This is very interesting. So I had to go online and find a variety of samples of this. The Roman church has repackaged the Ten Commandments. And if you go, you can Google it today, and you'll find that this is how it works. The first commandment, I'm reading now, um, quoting now, I am the Lord your God, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Second commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What happened to the one about graven images? 
Well, it's kind of condensed and pushed up into the first one in certain representations of it. Well, how do you get 10 then? Well, they split the 10th one into two. In their view, the ninth commandment is you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and the 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's goods. So they split the last one and do away with the second. So, obviously then, with the support of sola scriptura, scripture alone, it was, it was obvious for the reformers to insist on Christ alone. Christ alone. Doing away with, with any homage, worship, veneration of any other to the exclusion of Christ alone. Going to the scripture. Scripture alone. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father by me. Uh, John 14, 6, 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, verse, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so the reformers moved into that role and um, established sola, uh, solus Christus in response to the variety that had been held forth by the Roman church. Solus Christus, so said the reformers. Time passed. During the centuries following the Reformation, a couple of concurrent events developed in the wake of the Protestant Reformation. First of all, the Protestant movement spread across Europe and onto the New World, North America particularly. And second, right along in the same time frame, the influence of Enlightenment thought went with it. A new threat to Protestantism and to Protestantism's five solas developed as Enlightenment thinkers thought up, developed, embraced a high view of man and his ability to reason. Eventually, inevitably, the enlightened scholars called into question the integrity of the scriptures. And with that, all that the scriptures contained. The enlightenment elevated man. So now man is able to sit in judgment on the Bible. Serious scrutiny ensued through the institutions of higher education in Europe and ultimately in the United States. That uh, scrutiny certainly was characterized by skepticism, and then doubt took over as the Bible was declared and considered to be untrustworthy in its own right. As a result, largely in Europe, but also among mainline Protestant groups in America, uncertainty about the Bible led to subjectivity and an insipid man-centered version of what once had been considered rock-ribbed Protestant Reformation Christianity. Scroll forward to the summer of 1914. Perhaps you're familiar with the term August Madness. August Madness is a, is a term that refers to a celebratory state across the major urban centers of Europe 
leading up to the First World War. It was as if many European countries couldn't wait to go to war and were waiting for an, a reason, for an opportunity to do that. Uh, multitudes of nations enthusiastically forged alliances and geared up for what would be called the Great War. It's very interesting to me, just on, on the side, that hum, a humanistic worldview led to this. Once people took charge and no longer honored the God of Scripture, in a sense they're on their own, and what, but what humanism produced was the most dehumanizing event ever to occur in world history. Millions of people died in the First World War, eclipsed incidentally by the numbers in the Second World War, but the First World War was unique in that old school thinking, old school tactics on the battlefield were met by modern weapons of destruction. And people were slaughtered in the millions. And eventually, no one even knew why they were fighting anymore. But nations with their, with their patriotic bent uh, couldn't get themselves out of it and still retain their honor. It was a terrible, terrible time. But humanism led to dehumanizing. Very interesting how that worked. Well, um, a young theologian and pastor named Karl Barth, you might say, looked out his window and was distressed to see a number of his seminary professors marching publicly in favor of war. And he, the, the question struck him, is this the best we can get from the gospel? If, in fact, people sit in judgment on the gospel, if, in fact, people interpret Scripture and tell us the ifs or if-nots with regard to eternal truth, is this where it goes to war? Bart, who incidentally was influenced in his youth by Sunday school and Moravian pietism. Very interestingly, how something in his background seemed to have resurfaced in his adult life. Disillusioned by his culture and by his training, Bart, who, who was a scholar of the Reformation and particularly of John Calvin, began a lifelong quest to return to a gospel based exclusively on God's word and he returned to Christ alone. Over his long lifetime of writing and teaching and preaching, they say Bart was responsible for over 10,000 pages of published work, and he, he died with his multi-volume church dogmatics unfinished. That doesn't include his sermons, which incidentally are a lot easier to read than his theology, and the articles that he wrote, and his theme was consistently Christ alone. Bart was Swiss. He visited the United States only once toward the end of his life and career, of course, and that was in 1962. That was 
seven years before Louise made her debut at Woodstock. I couldn't miss that opportunity. But in 1962, Bart made it to America. Had been invited over the years and, and was only able to come that one time. He was hailed as a rock star by the, by the Christian world and even made the cover of Time magazine. During his U.S. tour, Bart was asked how he was interviewed constantly. So a lot of questions and answers were given. Sola Scriptura. A lot of questions and answers were given. And in one point, Case, he, he was asked, but his voluminous research, writing, preaching, teaching career, he was asked if he could distill his entire corpus of scholarship into the simplest possible terms. His response, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I just find that gripping. He was asked also, incidentally, he was asked uh, his impression of the rising star evangelist young Billy Graham. And they had met, and Bart replied that Graham seems like a nice man, but his preaching is rather harsh. At one point, Bart was offered $100, which in 1962, $100 is half a month's pay for a, a good job, to declare his views on end times and eschatology. This was in 1962. Um, Israel had just become a nation, what, 14 years before. So, so this is big stuff. This was really headline stuff. And so, Dr. Bart, would you tell us what you believe about end times events? And he was... He had no answer. He, had, he was totally, never thought of it, totally unprepared. Um, but the state, and he also said, he wondered aloud if, if a man who didn't smoke could be a theologian. <laughs> but his statement that I'm, I, I most wish to repeat today came in response to a question about his being Christocentric. Uh, Dr. Bart, could you talk to us about your being Christocentric? And his response was this, there is no Christocentricity. He says, there is no Christology. There is only Christ. Isn't that interesting? We need concepts, Christology, Christocentricity. We need those to define Christ. But what, what he is saying is don't stop there and, and don't have your confidence there Christ alone, Christ alone is the one who matters. These others are worth exploring and discussing, but are no substitute for Christ alone. Now, for, for a long time, I was under the impression that, that Jesus was, you know, that member of the Trinity who ran the cosmic commissary. He dispensed eternal goods and services. That, that sort of was just me, my perception of him, uh, the way perhaps it came to me, um, that Jesus, he's the one who gives you redemption. He's the one who provides reconciliation. He's, he's the one um, who gives you everlasting life. He gives you stuff. He makes sure you get stuff if you trust him. You know, sola fide, <laughs> so come back to that. But it seems to me now, after a lot of time 
that the Bible has considerably more to say about who he is than about what he provides. Moving me, I hope, in, in my own thinking, and, and hopefully in yours too, away from what he does for me, for just who he is. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that Jesus gives us resurrection. He tells us he is the resurrection. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? I will give you resurrection? No, no, I am the resurrection. I will give you, I am the life. I, there's something about Jesus that encapsulates all of that. And it seems to me that the trick isn't getting what he has to give us, simply getting him. Paul, John, Peter, New Testament writers speak constantly about being in Christ. Being in Christ. In him. Not from him. But in him are all the spiritual blessings of heavenly things in high places. In him. In him is life. It's interesting that so much of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 has to do with uh, entreating the Father that, that they may be in you, and you and me, and I in them. There's a spiritual melding concept that seems to be suggested there. He doesn't as much provide us life as he is the life. He doesn't show us the way. He, he is the way. He doesn't tell us the truth. He just, he is the truth. John said, he who has the son has the life. The key is to be in Christ. All we have and are and ever hope to be are in Christ. And in Christ alone, and there's one other verse that, has, that I've been mulling over. It's in 1 Corinthians. I'll just read it to you. Because we put a lot of thought and effort, I think, and, and rightly so, into this business of Christ-likeness and becoming more like Jesus. And that's the sanctification thing, right? And, and we're all engaged in that, I, I, I trust. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. You know this verse, you memorized it, probably the third verse you ever memorized. Nevertheless, I live. But then he doubles back, yet not I. But Christ lives in me. And he says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. There's something about my life and Christ's life that have to be together. He in me, I in him. I think that has something to do with 1 Corinthians 1.30, where Paul writes, by his doing, or of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us. Jesus became to us wisdom from God. Christ is our wisdom. And righteousness. In Christ, we have right standing before God. And sanctification. In some sense. And redemption. 
doesn't give them. He offers us himself, and in him they are found. That's, and I, again, maybe it's just, just where I am right now in my life, in, in, in my understanding, but it seems to me as if pressing nearer to Christ is the key to it all. Trusting Christ and Christ alone is the key to it all. I think about, well, how do you, how do you grow as a Christian? Well, you trust Jesus as you make your choices. Trust Christ and Christ alone. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, these are ours as we are in him. Thus endeth the lesson, solus Christus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, would you convince us that you and you alone are the only worthy pursuit? Would you guard us, please, from distractions in our veneration, homage, and worship, and bring us rather to you, to the cross, to the Savior, to the One. And Father, would you show yourself strong to us in Christ? Would you meet us where we are right now? Whatever we're dealing with, whatever we're facing, would you meet us where we are right now, Father, but please do not leave us here. But by the working of the Spirit of Christ in us, Make us more like him. Father, cause us, please, to anticipate his return, to order our lives accordingly, and to be quick to share the life-giving gospel of Jesus. Thank you so much for inviting us into Christ. And we, we will thank you, God, and we'll do it someday. We'll do it perfectly, and we'll do it eternally. In Jesus' name, amen.